Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hey guys, this is Aswin Subsang, but please call me Swin, and welcome to The Daily Beast's Fever Dreams. Hi, I'm Will Summer, a politics reporter at The Daily Beast, where I dig into all the darkest recesses of American extremism and extremely online militants. I'm currently working on a book about QAnon and its disastrous impact on our society. I'm also a senior political reporter at The Beast and co-author of the book Sinking in the Swamp. I've spent years covering the intersection of entertainment and politics, and in the post-Trump era, that seems like the only sense way to cover politics in this beautiful, hideously stupid country of ours. On this podcast, we're going to take you on deeply reported plunges into the sometimes hilarious, sometimes scary fanatics infecting the way that millions of Americans view the world and how they vote. Even in the aftermath of the Trump administration, the energy of these conspiracy theorists, the grifters, and the influencers is still pushing our mainstream political landscape closer and closer to a breaking point. We're here to help you better understand how and why this is happening. And who in the halls of power are letting it happen? Along the way, we'll regularly bring on guests, including political pros, hard-nosed reporters, and some influential voices from Hollywood. So, Will, to kick off this show, I want to ask you about the conclusion of your star-making turn in the HBO documentary miniseries that we have heard so much about on this podcast, because we believe in vertical integration on the pod. Now that Q Into the Storm has wrapped its six-part run on HBO, Will... Tell us how you are handling your newly gigantic head and your newfound stardom on premium cable. It's been an interesting experience for sure. You know, this is, was kind of a, a years-long process. And, uh, you know, I think Colin the Colin Hoback, the director, did a great job. It's very weird. I, I think in some good ways, it, it's been a, it was a very weird production. Like, there's a, a guy who's represented by a talking cicada. It, it's been interesting. And, and, you know, just personally, as someone who, you know, has kind of spent several years of my life following QAnon, it's been, you know, sort of a, an eye-opening thing to watch. And full disclosure, we are going to be having the director of the movie, Colin Hoback, on the pod in just a little bit to talk to him a little bit more on this and discuss with him what was left on the cutting room floor of the documentary series. But before we get into that, I think the thing that surprised viewers the most when they uh, saw the finale, which recently aired on HBO, was that it kind of, sort of, maybe revealed who Q was. Yeah, this is maybe as close as we're ever going to get to knowing who currently runs Q. Cullen's, uh, the hypothesis throughout the documentary was that it was, uh, that Q in its current iteration is controlled by this father and son duo named Ron and Jim Watkins, who run 8chan or 8kun now, the forum where Q posts. Um, And so Cullen got some great access to them, hung out with them a lot. They turned out to be extremely weird guys. And then in kind of the climax of the movie, right uh, shortly before the Capitol riot, where we know a bunch of Q people were involved. Uh, Ron Watkins, who I think if you had to make an educated guess, would be the most likely candidate to currently run Q. He basically says, he sort of reveals that he feels that the Q board was kind of his operation all along. And then he sort of, he essentially is talking like he's Q. And then he suddenly goes, but I'm not Q. Uh, and so so it's not quite a smoking gun. It's not like, uh, you know, the jinx saying I killed everybody. But that's kind of the big, the big sort of the big moment at the end of the documentary. Okay, at this point, well, what do you think is the main reason that whoever it is who started QAnon is just not coming out and saying it? Well, I mean, there's two kind of phases, right? So there's when QAnon starts on 4chan, and we still don't know who, if anybody, who created that. Maybe it's a bunch of people. Maybe they weren't even all working together because it it gets complicated, but there's kind of different arguments about what's a legitimate Q post. Um, But then when Q goes to 8chan, there's kind of this hijacking moment, uh, at least a lot of people see it that way, in which 
it it appears that Q basically that the owners of Achan's they would have had an opportunity to sort of seize control of the Q name, and so that is when people say that that the Watkins family seized control of Q. So so we don't know who started QAnon, um, and QAnon was sort of its uh, there was this period on on for months before Q first appeared where people were doing kind of very similar bits on 4chan, and so they would say like I'm in the FBI, I'm FBI anon. I mean, there's a guy called Big Dick. Anon. Wait, I mean, wait, wait, this wait, is really who was Big Dick Anon about? Like, what is he? What is he leaking information from? No, I'm I'm not trying to be, do a stupid pun there. I'm actually <laughs> curious. What? I mean, they're all kind of very similar in terms of like you know Hillary Clinton's about to be arrested. You know, Pizzagate is real. This kind of stuff. And for whatever reason, Q, I basically managed to gather a lot of kind of hardcore adherents. And it's interesting reading the first posts where everyone's like, "Get out of here, Q! You're a total loser." There's a really funny line where someone Q's like, "I must go dark." Like the deep state's closing in, and someone's like, "Yeah, time to log off. Mom's meatloaf is ready. Loser, get out of here." <laughs> and and it's just fascinating to see how people treated Q initially into this, you know, into this thing that would, you know, have people in Congress and you know, storming Congress. Uh, yeah, I, I actually did not know that. I'm surprised that in our years of knowing each other and working together, we never that that has never come up in casual conversation. So at the beginning, it was just a complete joke or, or, yeah, or taken yeah, as yeah. such by the vast online. People were like just roasting this guy or person, whoever it is, as just like, oh, l- like you are the Reddit or whatever equivalent of the anonymous West Wing staffer from 2017 on Twitter. Yeah, exactly. Like, I, that's a trope people might recognize from from Twitter, where there would be people that would be like Department of Defense insider or like National Security insider, and they would post like, Donald Trump is furious today. He spilled coke all over the nuclear codes. And then people would go like, oh my God, right? But, and so that's a format that people on Twitter came to recognize as fake. And in the same way on 4chan, people came to recognize people like Big Dick and on as fake. And so Q was sort of treated in the same way. And, and sort of the where it all falls apart is when a handful of people are like Q's real actually and they take it out of 4chan where everyone's skeptical of it and they put it into YouTube and Reddit and Facebook and then it sort of spreads there to a much less skeptical audience. Okay, is gigantic clit anon or whatever it's called still a big factor in this universe or is that similarly laughed off nowadays right so big dick anon actually there are some people who believe in in I, i'm assuming him um but in, and in fact there's kind of these splinter movements where people say you know i think understandably that because they suspect that q is now under control of the hn crew they say you know oh, i believe in big dick anon or fbi anon that's that's the real that's the real truth that i follow so so yeah i mean it, it's it's a really weird world. And, and you know, just to bring it back to, to the documentary, I think Cullen did a, about as good a job as you can of, um, you know, sort of explaining that or, or making that this whole kind of story, which is, you know, a very online one, but also a very relevant one, I, I think, offline to normal people. Well, speaking of QAnon and QAnon promoters, one of my favorite characters in that subset of MAGA world and Trump land over the past few years has been attorney Lynn Wood. Our listeners may uh, have some passing familiarity with Lynn Wood's efforts, especially in the aftermath of the 2020 election, when he did become one of those weirdo, intensely pro-Trump, pro-MAGA attorneys who wasn't actually on Donald Trump's anti-democratic legal team trying to kill democracy in America following November 2020. But he was working these parallel efforts and rallies and lawsuits that went nowhere to try to allege that the election was stolen and handed to Biden by whatever or whoever. Now, this would have seemed like just another anti-democratic sideshow of the post-election Trumpian universe if it weren't for the fact that Lynn Wood, according to people we talked to with direct knowledge of this, actually got on the phone with Donald Trump multiple times. But while all of this was going on, Donald Trump, then the most powerful person on the face of the planet, actually took him seriously. Now, the reason I'm talking about Lynn Wood right now is because, Will, you were working on a while while you were sifting through documents and uh, different information that you'd gotten from source or sources of this weird gun-related incident that ha- had to, to do with Lynn Wood 
and other wild accusations that were flying in his small universe. And uh, full disclosure, uh, the story ended up getting scooped by a reporter at lawandcrime.com. So we're not breaking this story and we weren't able to last week. But Will, can you take us through what you were following? Yeah, so I mean, this is a, a lot of drama that emerges out of the uh, the Kyle Rittenhouse defense slash fundraising empire. And of course, people that remember Kyle Rittenhouse, young man accused of shooting some people in Kenosha, Wisconsin uh, last summer. And so Lynn Wood and uh, some other attorneys of some interesting backgrounds sort of hitch themselves to the, the Rittenhouse legal effort. They raise a ton of money, I believe $2 million for his bail eventually. But this is like, just there's just huge amounts of drama behind this. And and you know what? I mean, this kind of gets to, I think, what my passion is in many ways uh, about covering, you know, whether it's Lynn Wood and his crew or anyone else's, that there's always like insane amounts of factionalism and drama in basically any sort of right-wing effort. And so in this case, the the highlight of this law and crime story, which which features Kyle Rittenhouse's mother basically saying that she thinks Lynn Wood took her son for a ride, essentially, and that he wanted, you know, Lynn Wood is a guy who's, at least according to some who know him, is dealing with some, some either mental or stability issues. The Georgia State Bar has asked him to take a mental fitness test to retain his law license, something he has refused. Anyway, so she claims that Lynn Wood was thought that around the election there would be this big apocalypse. And so he was like, it's actually a great idea to keep Kyle Rittenhouse in jail because he'll be safe there. Obviously, if you're in jail, maybe that doesn't sound so good to you. And and then, yeah, I mean, so the highlight here is sort of an incident of a fight over a gun at, at Lynn Wood's uh, South Carolina plantation. He lives on a plantation. Yes, it's called Tomatly, and I believe he paid like between eight and nine million dollars for it last year. Does it have a moat? It has one of those things. It looks like it's right out of like Red Dead Redemption 2, where it's like like the oak trees go over one another and they create kind of a dome. It, I mean, it looks pretty cool. I'll, I mean, the tree part looks pretty cool, I'll admit. Okay, and this real-life plantation could have, but luckily did it did not get as violent as an actual scene from Red Dead Redemption. Right. So could you, what is the deal with the gun here for, right, for people right. who have no idea what you're talking about? Right, so so the thing to understand about, you know, anybody, any right-wing character with a large house is going to have a lot of people hanging out at the house. And so... In this case, Linwood had uh, this former Navy SEAL named Dave Hancock who was doing kind of nebulous security work for him. This is last October. So basically, Dave and Lynn had been at odds for a while. Dave claims that basically Lynn, you know, was acting like a nut and claiming he could hear, see the future, all this kind of stuff. You know, Lynn claims that, you know, Dave was acting unstable. And so Dave carries a pistol on him and this this night it's like around midnight and there's this really crazy argument and Lynn tells Dave to get out of the house and Lynn grabs and, and Lynn Wood, Wood admits this and, and and meanwhile what what Lynn doesn't know seemingly at the time is that Dave is recording all of this uh, on audio and so basically Lynn grabs the is this audio that you yourself have reviewed that is correct yes and I and I have talked with I mean it, you know it's all in the law and crime podcast basically if if people want to go listen to it but basically they get in sort of a scuffle. Lynn grabs the gun out of the holster, out of Dave's holster, and neither party says he aimed it at him. But it's obviously not an ideal. You know, it's a little heated, right? Does the scuffle sound? as crazy on the audio as I'm picturing it in my mind right now? So, so, so the scuffle itself is not on the audio, kind of the aftermath is, and he's saying, like, you know, you're lucky I didn't beat your ass, boy. Like, you know, that kind of that that kind of stuff. I mean, is, it's really, like... the best Lynn Wood impersonation you got? <laughs> I mean, you really get a sense of um, the... And, and, you know, I mean, Lynn Wood saying, look, you're a former Navy SEAL. I'm this guy in my late 60s or 70s. How, you know, intimidated can you be? And the guy said, well, you know, you did grab my gun. Um, and <laughs> And then, you know, eventually the, the sheriff's department is called out there. I mean, this, I, I will say this Dave Hancock guy, he really like the, there's like dashboard video. I mean, it, it's a really well-documented moment. And so it really, I think is just a glimpse behind this kind of really heated lifestyle, uh, you know, 
know, the, going on, you know, behind the Rittenhouse, the behind the scenes of the Rittenhouse thing. I mean, you know, at the same time or soon to, soon around that same time, we have a lot of characters like Sidney Powell, you know, a lot of guys who are like, we're going to prove the election was stolen about a month later. It's very sort of tumultuous scene, I would say. So have the Rittenhouse family actually disowned Linwood uh, in a similar way to what Nicholas Sandman did to Linwood? Yeah, I mean, it, right. So so Linwood had had all this money was raised through this Linwood operation called the Fight Back Foundation, which later became his vehicle for kind of election fraud, vigil, you know, hunting, essentially. And but ba- yeah, so Lynn is no longer the attorney for Rittenhouse. Rittenhouse's mother is really slamming him in this law and crime story. So yeah, I mean, they really tried to distance themselves. There's also this this brewing legal fight. There's a second attorney involved here named John Pierce, who I, I've written about for the Daily Beast. Not not as big a name as Linwood, but a very uh, colorful character in his own right. He used to have this very high-flying law firm that has really collapsed under just a massive amount of debts that he's been accused of, of racking up. And so it struck me almost as soon as this fundraising effort started that this guy who <laughs> seems to have a need for a lot of money was, uh, was attaching himself to a cause that was going to raise a lot of money. So now basically what happened was the Fight Back Foundation sends the money for the bail through John Pierce's law firm, which then puts up the bail. Well, let's say Kyle Rittenhouse, once his case is resolved, someone is going to get that $2 million back. And right now, the way it would work is the money would go to John Pierce because he's kind of the last point on the bail. Now, Lynn Wood says, hold up, that money belongs to the Fight Back Foundation. Now, I think some people would say maybe that that money is intended for Kyle Rittenhouse's family. So right now we have kind of a a three-way fight over $2 million brewing. And okay, so there's a gun, money, (laughs) or are there any drugs in this scenario? Not that we're aware of right now. Okay, so it's not precisely a Guy Ritchie movie, but it's almost it's, it's like more the than there. half of the way there. Yeah, Godard once said, if as long as I'm not quoting something apocryphal here, <laughs> that all you need for a movie is a girl and a gun. Uh, well, <laughs> we're at least halfway there on this one. Absolutely. So, Swin, uh, Trump World Star Representative Matt Gates is in the news over a potential Justice Department investigation into his possible involvement with a 17-year-old girl and alleged sex trafficking. Uh, how is this being received by Gates's buddies in Trump land? Well, the thing about Matt Gates is that for the past roughly half decade or so, I'm not sure you can find anyone else on Capitol Hill who would have been more willing to throw himself on Trump-shaped grenade after Trump-shaped grenade over the past four years or so, just anytime any scandal or incriminating evidence or controversy came up that started enveloping Trump or his administration or Trump world at large, Matt Gates would be there to go on the airwaves or go before the cameras to talk about how it was bullshit, it was a witch hunt, yada, yada, yada. There, I'm not sure there was a single thing that Trump could do to flag the publicly displayed loyalty or fealty of Matt Gates. Now, we flash forward to Matt Gates now being enveloped in the biggest crisis and scandal of his political career and life. And where is Donald Trump? Well, as... He's left him out to dry. Yeah, well, yes, because... And it's something quintessentially Trumpian that almost always, not always, but almost always, when the chips are down and it's Trump's turn to be loyal or quote-unquote loyal to the people who have... Uh, subjected themselves to, like, the cult of Trumpism for whatever reason, whether they actually believe it or they're trying to get something out of Donald Trump, he is so often just nowhere to be found. He washes his hands of it or he leaves people hanging out to dry. And in Matt Gates's case, it's been more than a week since the scandal broke. And according to people we've been talking to who are familiar with the matter, uh, Donald Trump has been monitoring the situation from afar as he's been ensconced in his post-presidency uh, uh, dwellings of Mar-a-Lago. He's been asking uh, various confidants and advisors, uh, what do they think of the Matt Gates situation? Is there anything that should be done about it? And he has been almost entirely across the board told by people who he's privately asked about it to stand down. They have essentially pleaded with him to shut the fuck up about it. Don't put out any statement on Matt Gates. Thankfully, now the former president can't actually tweet about Matt Gates, And just to stay publicly mum as possible about the whole scandal because they think there's too much they don't know. 
Uh, they think it seems really bad for Matt Gates right now, even if he ends up being vindicated on certain matters. Well, you got to feel for Matt Gates here. I mean, this is a guy who is doing everything for Trump, right? Meanwhile, Trump is putting out these weird pseudo tweets, press releases where he's like, where's Durham? Where's Durham? Or he's like, uh, I'm so mad at the MLB. And I, I I'm guess so he's mad, mad at, at baseball. Yeah. He's mad at Coke now. And. You know, meanwhile, his buddy Matt Gates, maybe his hardest core dude in in the house, is just you know being hung out to dry in his own state. It's it's just deafeningly silent. Like the like it'd be one thing if Trump shut the fuck up for a little while and didn't put out any of those tw- the, their tweets. But since he doesn't have Twitter, he has to do these statements via his stupid office or whatever. Uh, Trump is continuing to put out these statements, but very conspicuously in every single one so far over the past week or so, Matt Gates has been nowhere to be seen in any of them. <laughs> and it, it, he couldn't. And just for the record, Donald Trump is someone who, in the past, has rarely, if ever, shied away from jumping to the vociferous defense of not just himself, but close and prominent allies who have been accused of assault or sexual misconduct or anything else like that. So his silence here on Gates is made extra deafening, given the severity and gravity of the scandal. And look, Matt Gates has been uh, trying to publicly give Trump world basically everything they would need, all the ammunition they need, to sort of spin this into a mirror image of what Trump has accused his enemies of trying to do to him during his presence. See, you have an, a convoluted extortion plot, uh, allegedly. You have uh, the FBI. You have leaks, it seems, from law enforcement and the DOJ. You have everything you need here to perhaps baselessly accuse this entire investigation into Matt Gates and his alleged misconduct. You have everything you need here to try to spin it into a supposed deep state plot against a MAGA warrior. The machinery has been built, basically, and Trump could just, like, cross out Donald Trump's name and write in Matt Gates's name, and he's not doing it, you know? And, and, I mean, and then if Trump did that, I think the whole machinery would swing in behind him. Maybe Sean Hannity would do it, you know, like the whole gang. And, and yet, I mean, the signal is really out. And, and I think it's a measure of how freaking weird this gate saga is, right? Like, you know, you mentioned the extortion plot, allegedly. You know, there's this whole, like, oh, are we going to get the, the guy out of Iran? You know, I mean, it's just wild to me. It's by far the dumbest version or supposed version of Iran-Contra that I've ever heard of in my <laughs> entire life. It's wild. I love it. And of course, you know, the Truman Show's involved here because Matt Gates grew up in the Truman Show house. Wait, what? You didn't know this? Explain that one more time. Yeah, Matt Gates, his parents, and then he, you know, by extension, he grew up in the house where the Truman Show was filmed. Wait, so it wasn't a Hollywood set? They actually filmed in, like, a neighborhood? I guess. I mean, yeah. Ah, okay. So he, he's, he's our... <laughs> I don't he, really Matt know what to Gates do with that. <laughs> is, is the kind of the ongoing saga that we all tune into, just like the Truman Show. One of the times we spoke to Matt Gates last week, we were asking him about the stuff we were hearing from uh, different sources about how... Before this scandal broke, he was also pulsing not just people at Newsmax, but others in conservative media, including One American News Network, about a potential gig if or when he left Congress. And when we got in touch with him, he told us on the record, quote, yes, I've had many conversations with many people about life after Congress. There is not a single conservative television station I haven't had a passing conversation with about life after Congress. I have neither received nor solicited offers from any of them. But yes, I've talked to either executives, producers, or hosts at Newsmax, OAN, Fox, Fox Business, Real America's Voice, and probably others I'm forgetting at Put him on RSBN. Exactly. Yeah. Put, put him on... Uh, right Side Broadcasting. They need him. Yeah, Patriot and, Soapbox is the QAnon YouTube show. Maybe that. Right. So when we asked him about this, this was after the scandal broke. And you're talking about Donald Trump and other heavy hitters and luminaries in Trump world not being there for Matt Gates right now. The Fox News PR department is definitely not there for Matt Gates right now because when we asked them about what Matt Gates had told us, a Fox News media spokesperson said in response, quote, no one with any level of authority has had conversations with Matt Gates for any of our platforms, and we have no interest in hiring him. Brutal Fox Nation is like, we want, we want nothing to do with this we guy. We want nothing with Matt Gates. Sorry, OAN. buddy, you don't get to like tour the national parks or whatever for a Fox <laughs> Nation show. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices 
down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Okay, and moving on for a second, this week's guest has the distinction of being the Robert Rodriguez to Will Summers Antonio Banderas. Colin Hoback, a documentarian and self-described investigative filmmaker, most recently helmed Q, Into the Storm, a documentary miniseries on the all-American QAnon phenomenon. This documentary series just finished up its six-part run on HBO and also had the distinct pleasure of being executive produced by none other than Adam McKay, the writer and director and satirist behind such works as Anchorman, The Big Short, and Step Brothers. Full disclosure, as we have said many a time on this pod, for his HBO doc, Colin, of course, interviewed and prominently featured our very own William Summer. So in Cullen and also in our collective financial interest, please do not pirate Q into the storm. Purchase as many copies as humanly possible on Amazon, on HBO Max, and at other major retailers. You can follow Cullen on Twitter at Cullen Hobach. Cullen, welcome to Fever Dreams. Thank you. And I'm not a big proponent of copyright loss, if you uh, I'm just <laughs> that. I'm just kidding. Uh, right now, it's only available on HBO Max. But uh, thank you. Yeah, I was. I mentioned to you right before we got going here that, yeah, I took some animal aerials last night. Uh, so I, I had a, a long night of fever dreams. So I'm, I'm ready for the ready for the show. That's getting into the spirit. We appreciate yes. that. <laughs> yeah, just a, a long, sweaty night. Just to let you know, I don't remember if you interacted with me at all when you first entered the Daily Beast office to interview Will for what would become your HBO documentary. But I remember a few years ago distinctly, there was one day where I was just working in the office. I think it was alone. And you've seen our DC office. It's like a shack. It's like a tool shack. And suddenly guys with cameras barge in. You guys are really getting trolled for having all those water bottles just sitting out sitting out in the open. Uh, people really gra- people really gravitated towards that, that feature in the, in the shot. I'm honestly terrified about entering it now that the pandemic is maybe going to be over soon. <laughs> and what's there's just going to be nothing but raccoons in there and old uh, old copies of John Avalon books. So, <laughs> one of the first things we want to ask you was how exactly did you get this level of access to people who probably had some sort of inkling that you weren't on their side on this issue, um, including on January sixth? And uh, why do you think they let you hang out with them as much as you did? Uh, great question. Yeah. So, I mean, when this started, I think there, I think that Jim and Ron Watkins is. Uh, motivations shifted over time. Uh, part of the reason I think they talked to me in the beginning, well, it could have just been the fact that I was one of the first to reach out to them. You know, it was many, many months before the Christchurch shooting, so they weren't very prominent names yet, in, just in general. Fred Brennan, who had created HN, he was the most public-facing of the three. So I had reached out to him on Twitter. Um, I guess he agreed to talk to me because uh, I guess he, he liked that I had quote unquote, trolled Mark Zuckerberg uh, in my previous film. So that was his motivation for talking to me. Uh, We talked for several hours, partially about free speech issues, um, also about Q. And uh, I asked, hey, can I come out to the Philippines? Would you be willing to film with me? You know, he hadn't done hardly any media in his life, uh, but he agreed to that. Uh, and he said, hey, you know, you might also want to try to talk to Jim, uh, to Jim and Ron Watkins. He's like, they're the ones who currently own and operate HN. So there was no reason to believe they would want to talk to me. I think I had a few messages with Ron over Twitter uh, while he was still on Twitter. He mentioned that we should visit the pig farm. Um, but I, again, I, I couldn't tell how much of it was, uh, how much uh, they were kind of yanking my chain, if, if any of this was going to come to fruition or not. Ron, aka Code Monkey, was one of the most mysterious of the bunch. There was virtually no information available about him online at that point. And I think that the reason they talked to me was because they wanted to to have their side of the story heard initially. There was this burgeoning rivalry between Fred and and those two guys that I could kind of detect while I was there the first time, but Fred was mostly holding his tongue on the subject. So I think that that was part of why they did it. I think they also talked to me because I had a background in digital rights and I was exploring the question of the limits of free speech through Q, and they had a maximalist approach to free speech on their website. You know, so I, I, I probably oversold the idea that it was about free speech, and then brought more of the brought more of the sort of line of questioning around Q into the conversation as uh, those 
first couple of days went on. And you can tell because the next time that they met with me, um, uh, you can tell that they weren't prepared for that line of questioning because the next time they met with me, uh, suddenly they knew a lot less about Q. <laughs> far ah, less. So yeah. their story, it's as if they had regrouped and their story has changed significantly. Did they start asking you if you were a cop and then followed up with, you have to tell me if you are in <laughs> fact a cop? Oh, they just assume you're CIA. Uh, that's just, <laughs> that's par for the course for Ron. Uh, just, just, just that assumption. Uh, I think pretty much everybody who enters their orbit in some way, shape or form, they initially assume or surmise might be CIA. Right. So uh, one thing we want to ask you about Jim and Ron was what was left on the cutting room floor of the Jim and Ron saga that you had been witness to or were filming? And what did you feel being around them that wasn't fit for print? <sighs> Gosh, let me let me think about it wasn't fit for print. I mean, I think we they told me that they were on their best behavior <laughs> when they were around me. <laughs> So there was not, so that's their best behavior, apparently. There wasn't really, there was nothing that I caught on camera really that was worse than what was portrayed in the series. I mean, I tried to create a sort of holistic picture of who these guys were. When I think of Jim, you know, the thing that I think is the most telling about his personality is Pen15 Club. He's just a guy who's still in the Pen15 Club forever. And, uh, you know, Ron, uh, he is like a real life shitpost. You know, he, that sequence in episode four where he talks about uh, having, um, you know, who his favorite, his favorite philosopher is, uh, Diogenes. He likes Diogenes because he trolled people. You know, he would take a shit in the middle of the town square. Uh, because dogs could do it. So it always stuck out with me when, when, when Ron said that. He's like, well, if dogs can do it, why can't I? And I think that that pretty much sums up Ron's worldview. He's basically constantly taking a shit in the middle of the town square. Of course, he's also nihilistic and treats the world like it's a game. So Colin, obviously this was the years-long project and you pursue other avenues of who may be behind QAnon. You talk to Paul Ferber in South Africa, one of the first QAnon proponents. You try to meet Steve Bannon in Italy. Uh, at what point did you start really narrowing it down to the Watkins? So after that first trip to the Philippines, uh, my suspicions went way up. Uh, when I had traveled there initially, I, I had no reason to believe that Jim or Ron or Fred were necessarily involved in Q. Fred maybe more so uh, because he had had this mysterious blue Q show up and uh, Code Monkey had been mentioned in the drops. So it seemed like they w might have more knowledge than others and certainly uh, they would have had access to the technical data related to Q, which is why I gravitated towards that. But it was their answer that first time I was there, um, you know, some of the things that they said, and, and not all of it is 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 not, was able to be included in the in the series, but a, a lot of the things that they said that really, you know, my ears really shot up. And I, I think I came back from that, and I was like, all right, well, it seems like these these guys are are, are probably involved in some way. And I, it didn't mean that I stopped uh, exploring other possibilities concurrently. And there are some possibilities I explored that simply aren't included in the series. There's a whole sort of new age sect run by David Wilcock that, um, you know, there was a lot of overlap there. He was somebody who uh, had suggested that he had uh, connections or affiliate, some sort of, he was getting some sort of like insider knowledge through Q or his sort of orbit. You know, and so I had done this undercover sequence um, and it just ended up not being relevant because I didn't think that they were pulling the string. And I think that what ended up happening though is the more I filmed with, with Ron and Jim, the more they became concerned, particularly Ron, that my focus was uh, honing in on their involvement. And I think that's why I, on the third, I think it was the third trip, third time I'd met Ron, he uh, threw that, that Bannon that, you know, presented this incredibly compelling data set um, to throw me off. And, it, and so in this case, this data set, uh, for those who haven't seen it yet, it's basically arguing that some of the Q posts were coming ar from around an area where Steve Bannon lived. And Steve Bannon has sort of been bandied about, to my mind, I haven't seen the data set, but aside from the data set, has been bandied about as 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 a uh, sort of a, a, a choice, I, I think often because people think of who's a mischievous guy online, Steve Bannon. So Ron actually had been planting the seed for Bannon from the very first time I met him. So he had known me for, I think, less than 48 hours. And at the end of that seated interview where he's in the Goldwater studio, which is Jim and Ron Watkins, whatever, political, ridiculous pseudo news website, he's sitting there with his legs crossed. And afterwards, he pulls me aside and he just says, like, you know, you should look into Steve Bannon, um, which I always which I immediately found pretty suspicious, because why why would he suddenly be Mr. 
redirecting this person who at the time he would be more prone to to sort of troll. Right from the get-go, he was planting this seed. And it seemed like he had even done that internally. He is somebody who who works with them. At one point, uh, the second trip I was there showed me a chat they'd had that went all the way back to early January of 2018, where Ron internally was suggesting that it was Steve Bannon. It seems that this was a, a red herring. This is my interpretation, that it was a red herring that he had been planting for some time. And I suspect that he, you know, he'd put all of this, it, it, I suspect that he had put a lot of work into this and wanted someone to pick up on it. Well, outside of the Steve Bannons or the Roger Stones of Trump world, was there ever anybody you tried to get access to or did get access to in the echelons of the Trump administration or the Trump campaign who you just wanted to talk to even if just to ask them about what they thought of how much this was infecting good chunks of the MAGA base? I certainly tried. And I tried to get an interview with Steve Bannon about as much as I could have. You know, and there was there was back and forth uh, with his head handler, but it didn't work out. And in, and in general, I found that there was resistance to discussing this. So I guess Jack Posobiec is really the one who, I mean, he's more peripherally in, in, in Trump's circle. I mean, he had assisted on the, the Trump campaign. I wasn't able to get an interview with like Dan Scavino on it. Just in terms of, you know, other questions about your reporting process, these strike me as, and and obviously I'm, I'm in this world as well, these are like just incredibly unsavory, often very unreliable people, either with the Watkins storyline or more broadly in QAnon land, who are often trying to play you for their own ends. You know, obviously you encounter a lot of these characters or, uh, you know, I think of people like Omar Navarro in the documentary, who is, my sense was, was trying to portray himself as more of a player than he is. I mean, how do you approach reporting in such a, a milieu that's, you know, wherever so slippery. Well, yeah. I mean, I think one of the biggest challenges with this is that I was moving between two sides that hate each other and mm-hmm. uh, two sides that were trying to put each other in prison, essentially. And and so I think that they saw me as a potential conduit for information or disinformation. And so I had to uh, set some ground rules, which I told to all of them, which is that I, I simply wouldn't be sharing details with the other side. And and that was, a um, I think, I think helped in some ways as well, because if they felt that I was sharing details, then they wouldn't have been quite as open. Um, and, and I don't think that we would have been able to capture the story that we did. You know, I was struck by that when you're with that guy who's like Jim surrogate's son, that guy who wears the crazy outfits, that he's treating you like you're on his side when, obviously, when Fred is, when you're with Fred, you know, he, yeah, I mean, I, yeah, I think you certainly pulled that off. I guess, you know, to me, you know, it felt like the climax was January 6th when we see this QAnon, this years-long culmination. We see these people suddenly breaking into the Capitol. I mean, for you, what was it like watching, you know, you were working on this documentary for several years, watching QAnon grow from something that was, you know, a couple signs at a Trump rally to being involved in the Capitol riot. And then, you know, as well, what was it like, uh, you know, just being on the ground there with Jim as all the, you know, as this is going down? I mean, I was very anxious going into that shoot. I think probably like like yourself, Will. I mean, if you've been following QAnon and really tracking the chatter with these groups and some of the other, you know, more even more extreme groups that were there that day, I think you'd have a sense that something really bad was going to happen. I, and, and frankly, I thought it was going to be worse. I mean, I didn't sleep much the two nights before it. And I think that that those emotions carried over into that into that day. And certainly, while I was filming Jim and and just trying to sort of chart his involvement and and chart his reactions and desires that day and you know it was it was it was pretty nerve-wracking being out there i mean will you were you were on the ground too weren't you I mean, what did it feel like to you? Yeah, I mean, it, I mean, yeah, it was, uh, you know, it was very scary, frankly. You know, I was, in, in particular, as someone who is sort of recognizable by some of these characters, I did not want to, the police had better things to do than to stop, you know, some crazy QAnon person from doing something to me uh, if they felt like it. And so, um, you know, I mean, it just, it, it, I think everyone experienced, you know, whether they were there or watching it on TV, I mean, it just felt like a very unstable situation. You can really see... There's two things that I saw in Jim's eyes that day. You know, his eyes were fiery and there was a, a real element of pride. Uh, and I think some of that's captured in the series. And you get this sense that you know, he, he's, he feels like what was happening that day wouldn't have happened without his website. That's good. good for him, I guess. <laughs> yeah, I know. Right? Well, yeah, that's so just, dark. But you just got to kind of, you just have to hold a camera on it and show it for what it is. I mean, and I think that that's, that's what we're doing here is, is 
revealing the mechanics of it, the personalities behind this, and, and showing the darker side of human nature. And uh, you know, was wasn't always easy um, maintaining a, a kind of neutral gaze through that. Um, but I, I think that it, uh, you know, I, I think it allowed for a, a story to be told that, um, yeah, couldn't couldn't have been told any other way. Um, and uh, I, I find that end sequence to be rather chilling. Yeah, absolutely. It really struck me. And speaking of which, Colin, how much conspiracist blowback have you gotten for this doc? And if so, in what form? Have you gotten much reaction from the Watkins, for instance, since this was airing? Right. Yeah. I mean, it's not as easy to monitor as it used to be. And that's in part because a lot of the chatter has moved to spaces that are less visible. I mean, you can monitor the Telegram groups. There's some Discord rooms out there, things like that. But, you know, it's not it's not as present, obviously, on on the mainstream platforms anymore. I do know that they are sharing clips around. I think that there is some confusion right now um, among those who are are Q followers. You know, here's this series that played on HBO. They're like, oh, it's Deep State. They're like, but it's but it's like kind of doing a fair job of representing some of the characters in this and some of the origins of Q. But then I I think they're really struggling with what it reveals and sort of the ugliness of uh, where Q comes from. Um, most Q followers had never real don't really interface with 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 that space and. Um, so I think there's a bit of cognitive dissonance happening right now. I think it reached a certain portion of that community. I don't know how, how much. I mean, ultimately, individuals have to decide to want to change their own minds in relationship to something. So, you know, here we just kind of lay out a lot of original source material and I think let the audience ultimately come to their own conclusion. Um, though I think that we paint a pretty compelling case that Ron Watkins is, is the linchpin of this whole thing. You know, and speaking of Ron, uh, towards the end of the the documentary, you know, a couple days after the riot, Ron Ron comes out and says, essentially, well, time to move on. We all had a great time uh, and learned a lot about ourselves in QAnon. Friends we made along the way. Yeah. Exactly. The real Q is the friends we made along the way. I mean, you include that in a documentary, but, but I'd be curious what your reaction was after, you know, spending time with this guy for several years and sort of chasing him. Um, and then suddenly he's like, well, uh, you know, good enough. See you guys later. To me, it felt like he, like Ron was throwing the controller down, you know, like you, you were like, you're playing a video game. You're just like, oh, I didn't beat the final boss. Just toss the <laughs> controller down. Like, and then, but then like, there's all these like avatars. You're still in the game. Like, wait, 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 wait. I thought we were, I thought we we're doing this. Uh, what happened? Uh, so, uh, yeah, that, 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 that's, that's kind of how I read it. I mean, he was, he was more or less also kind of following Trump's moves and Flynn's moves where they were all, um, starting to distance themselves and make it, you know, but then the people, the ground troops were just like wondering like what happened. <laughs> and I think that that's led to a lot of QAnon's feeling super misled. You know, we've seen the narrative emerge now that, uh, it, you know, it's a, it's a lot, some believe it's a psyop, some are doubling down and tripling down, trying to find ways to justify the plan is still on track. Um, I think that this series will answer some of those questions and, and explain um, the nature of the ways in which they were misled. But uh, you know, we'll, we'll we'll see how that all we'll see how that all shakes up. So the end uh, or the one of the final episodes features this really sort of nerve wracking scene where you're trying to help Frederick Brennan, the creator of 8chan, basically escape the Philippines ahead of an indictment for, I guess, defamation for sending some rude tweets in which he could potentially have gone to a prison, really which was not equipped to handle him. You know, he, he likely he could have died, as you say. Um, I mean, was that scene as intense in real life as it as it seems in the documentary? The escape from yes. the Philippines? Yes. Oh, it was more intense <laughs> than how it's I, I like trying to capture what it was like that day is really is really uh, t- I mean there's a lot of details about things that went wrong that we weren't even able to include it shouldn't be understated just how much COVID was on our heels I made it in on the last flight that was allowed in from Hong Kong um, you know the uh, the and the turnaround for getting them out of there was incredibly rapid um, there was no we had no idea when the indictment itself would actually drop. 
And his lawyer, the one who hadn't shown up to Jim's attempt to, to get naturalized in the petition to try to stop him, uh, you know, Fred was relying on the same lawyer who had told us to get to the airport super early. Uh, so we did. So we, we kind of arrived and then just sat there for a couple of hours. And so that's not portrayed in there. But then once, you know, Fred tried to go through customs and got pulled aside, that's when things really started to derail. I mean, the, the plane we ended up booking um, and barely catching, I mean, it, it was down to the second. Uh, that is no understatement. And we, we booked the last two seats on that flight. So it was just a series of, of miracles that it worked out the way that it did. What are the couple of things you mentioned that you weren't able to include? Are you able to get into detail about that? Oh, I mean, you know, just like additional emotional pressure, like my wife's grandmother died that night and I needed to get back to, back to the States. I couldn't, I couldn't afford, you know, with COVID shutting down and everything else, you know, but it, it's not, it really wasn't my, that stretch wasn't my, but that was just adding like another layer of tension to everything where, uh, you know, I could have gotten on the flight. Fred needed his I card, you know, so I just was sitting there going, Oh my God, I like, I need to get home and to my wife and, and help her with this. And if we miss this flight, I may, I don't know how long I'm going to be stuck in Manila for. You know, so I had to make the call to, you know, to the long shot of Fred getting this iCard or trying to find seats on another flight. Uh, it was a really awful decision to have to make. Um, and I'm glad it worked out the way that it did. But, you know, and I had asked Fred, I was like, look, if is there any way if I get on this flight that you'll be able to? And there was just no way I, I had to I had to stay had to stay there with him. So it's, um, so, you know, that was that was another just kind of piece in this this bigger um, complicated puzzle that was that day. Just ridiculous stuff like uh, Fred's van that needed to take us to that other terminal, which was ridiculously far away. You know, that his uh, his driver was eating Jolly at the time. <laughs> so we were just we were just kind of sitting there waiting for his driver to finish his Jollibee before we could uh before we could um you know get get to the next terminal. You know, we were debating like maybe we could throw all of our stuff into a taxi, but Fred's really fragile. And so trying to do anything quickly um with him and his situation is just increases the likelihood of broken bones and explain to the listener the deal with Fred. Well Fred Fred has brittle bone disease. So he's broken more than a hundred bones in his life. Um, and, uh, and, and so he, he a, a simple fall could, could kill him, um, potentially. So, uh, you know, he's, um, so, so just, uh, it, it just makes everything in his life, obviously, um, really difficult, especially something like, like travel. Would you ever make a sequel to this? Oh, I, I, uh, this was, this is such a daunting, um, such a daunting experience getting a, basically a six-hour movie made right now. I'm I'm trying not to <laughs> grapple with what it would mean to expand upon the story, but I'm not opposed to the idea. Okay, uh, well, Colin, thank you so much for coming by, and congratulations again on the documentary. Oh well, thank you, and thanks for the reporting you guys do. Okay, now that we've talked enough about Matt Gates' alleged horniness and misconduct, we can move on to a segment that we call here at Fever Dreams, Fresh Hell. It's our new segment in which we introduce our audience to something that they will be astonished by that actually exists in the current world we live in. Now, Will, there is this new anti-abortion movie that is out. I gotta be honest, this is not on my Amazon queue or anything like that. So you're gonna have to catch me up to speed on what the hell this thing actually is. But I do know that years ago, you had some weird interaction with the filmmakers of this movie while you all were in Washington, D.C. together. So uh, get us up to speed on that. Yeah, so this is maybe for your uh, Amazon Prime queue. We have Roe v. Wade, which came out on April 2nd, a extremely, I think, tendentious take on the history of the legalization of abortion. It is sitting at a nice 0% on Rotten Tomatoes. And so the there's an interesting backstory here, which is this guy named Nick Loeb, kind of a rich heir. He dated Sofia Vergara of Modern Family. She was on Entourage. Uh, and they had these frozen embryos. Wait, Sofia Vergara was on Entourage? But yeah, man. Uh, the Medellin episode. Oh, that's one episode. Okay, good. <laughs> you know, I recognize all Entourage cast members. So basically they had these frozen 
frozen embryos together. And then when they broke up, she was like, okay, well, I guess I don't want to have a kid with you anymore. And he was like, no, I want your embryo so I can have your kids. And then basically he then, because of this legal fight, has a awakening that he's now a big pro-life guy. And so he decides to use his money to fund this terrible movie called Roe v. Wade. And it features such stars as Jamie Kennedy, Milo Yiannopoulos, Roger Stone, and Mike Lindell, the MyPillow guy. And so these are, to be clear, this is a, these are, people are acting. This is not a documentary. Wait, and what? So, so you have Mike Lindell is a reporter and he's like, you know, oh, the big day for Roe v. Wade, miss, you know, and, and, and Roger Stone claims his, his acting turn has been very well received. Wait, wait, wait. Okay, so what's the plot of this movie? I, I just assumed when I saw those names, it was a stupid, basically YouTube documentary that just came out. No, no. I mean, this is like a like legit, I mean, look, Jamie Kennedy's in it. Our own Marlo Stern had a great interview with him in the Daily Beast where Jamie Kennedy all but said, like, look, man, I got bills to pay. Ah. Uh, and, uh, you know, we, we've got some kind of cl- some classics. We got Corbin Burnson, who was an old timer. So the plot, I mean, it's just about the Supreme Court case, Roe v. Wade. But have you watched it? I have not watched it. I can't bear to watch it because of my own incident on the set. When you were part of the cast before they kicked you out because of a breakdown in contract negotiations. Yeah, I, I was kicked out of my trailer. This is uh, maybe the most I've ever been roughed up. I'll tell you what. I have covered Proud Boys. I have covered the Capitol riot. I have never been as roughed up as I was on the set of Roe v. Wade. What happened? Because I don't remember you coming back to the office one day with like a bloodied lip or like caved in nose or anything like that. So maybe I missed that day. The police got involved. This was actually a matter of Park Police Inquiry. So here's what happened. So this was at a time in 2018. I just started working for The Beast. Roe v. Wade was stirring up a lot of drama in Hollywood because, you know, as Jamie Kennedy suggests in his interview with uh, with Marlo Stern, uh, a lot of these people thought there was going to be a movie about Roe v. Wade, basically, and they didn't realize how Nick Loeb sort of had this agenda about making it a very pro-life movie. Um, And so a lot of people had been walking off the set once they saw the scripts and they were quitting and all this stuff. So Roe v. Wade comes to D.C. to film at the Lincoln Memorial. I go to watch the filming because, you know, I thought maybe there'd be a protest or whatever. And then kind of some weird stuff starts happening. People are kind of jostling me because I'm just sitting with these tourists who are not part of the set either. People start jostling me. And then this guy, this PA comes up and he just grabs my notes and starts booking it. It starts running. And I'm like, hey. And so I'm start, I start chasing him down the steps of the monument. And then he's like, bro, why are you following me? And he stuffs my notes into his underwear. And oh. so basically I, I call the police because look, I just want my notes back. And then the cop comes and he decides to, the guy goes, okay, here's his notes. He pulls them out of his underwear. And I'm like, well, I don't want them now. And so then the cop just <laughs> lets the guy go. Later, the park police decided that he should have been arrested uh, after I complained. But I mean, you know, and then this was a whole thing. Corbin Burnson apologized to me. Um, and, and you know, look, I think, frankly, their, their ill treatment of me uh, was an omen. And otherwise, this would have been an Oscar winner. And unfortunately, now it has turned out so poorly. You cursed the movie because a random production assistant rubbed his dick all over your furious note-taking. That's correct. And, I mean, to be clear, to be clear, this person was clearly, I would say, set up. This was not a, a rogue production assistant. This was someone who had been dispatched to take care of me. But hey, Hollywood's a rough town. You know, I'm trying to swim with the big boys and that's what you get into. So, okay, I'm sorry to go to, into this granular detail about like the uh, piss-stained notes at this point, but when he takes them out of his, first of all, why didn't he put them in his pocket? Right, that's a great point, right? I mean, because I wasn't trying to like frisk this guy. I was just like, we're going to get some cops here. We're going to settle this. Uh, and he, you know, did not feel that he was he basically trying to get away with it. I mean, look, I'm looking at the IMDb right now. These are some really, this is a, like a great cast list here. We got uh, Steve Gutenberg. We've got Joey Lawrence. We've got Stacy Dash. And, you know, critically, we've got John Voight. I mean, these are like, yes. look, I mean, I, I'll yes. say this for Nick Loeb. I mean, this may be part of some twisted embryo custody battle, but I mean, you know, he's putting some cash into this thing. Out of all of the actors on this, which uh, a list that includes, I would also add Tommy Laren, Corbin, perhaps, he seems to have recognized that they shouldn't be sending out little, you know, their thugs to rough up reporters, which I can only assume is a sort of more uh, rectitude he got uh, on L.A. Law. Now he's out here. On that note, let's wrap up this episode of Fever Dreams from The Daily Beast. 
In future installments, we'll also be speaking to some awesome reporters and other colleagues at The Daily Beast and beyond, from politics, popular culture, and other overfed, underdeveloped institutions. We hope you'll subscribe to us on your preferred podcasting app and share the show on social media or at your family dinner table. If you'd like to follow us on Twitter, I'm at Will Summer and Swin is at Swin24. Come say hello. This podcast is produced by Jesse Cannon with music by Brian Demiglio. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you next time. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.